You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Users are not the weakest link in the chain. They can be the first line of defense. And so when we look at user layer defenses, we're looking at how do we help the users protect themselves? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Jamika Green-Aaron, she is CISO at Auth0, and we're discussing their State of Security Identity Report. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories this week, uh, we have a number of uh, little items of follow-up. Yes, we do. Got some big news. Go with the first one, Dave? <laughs> well, just real quick, if you're, a, if you're a follower of the CyberWire, you likely saw that uh, we had some big uh, news here at CyberWire. We have merged with another company called CyberVista. Uh, CyberVista is a cyber um, training and education uh, firm. And uh, so we have merged with them and formed a new parent company called N2K Networks. Uh, and uh, what what does that mean for you as a CyberWire listener? Not much. Right. Uh, this show, Probably still get the same feed. Same feed, same shows, all that sort of thing. Uh, what it means for us is that uh, there's a lot of potential for growth for us, uh, new shows, new types of shows, uh, and then also uh, more educational components to our shows as we uh, take advantage of all of the skills and opportunities that the folks at CyberVista bring to the table. No so, comedy shows, Dave? Uh, don't rule it out. You never know. Never know. But uh, we're very excited about it here. It's something that's been in the works for several months. Folks have been working really hard behind the scenes. So uh, looking forward to what the future brings. Uh, What other follow-up do we have here, Joe? Dave, we have a letter from Richard who writes, Hi, Dave and Joe. I just wanted to follow up with your discussion on the phishing kit targeting WordPress sites from episode 216. Hmm. Unless you absolutely need a fully-fledged content management system with a database, you are much better off using a static site generator such as Hugo if you want a set-it-and-forget-it site these days. Hmm. These essentially generate your site locally, spit out some HTML, usually with some CSS and JS thrown in. That's cascading style sheets in JavaScript. Mm-hmm. That you can then serve from a simple web server. No databases, no PHP, just static files. Much harder to do anything malicious and much easier to maintain. Hmm. Uh, a nice discussion of their merits versus something like WordPress can be found in episode 128 of the Reality 2.0 podcast, okay. which is, I, I have not listened to that podcast, so that's uh, Richard's recommendation. Richard goes on to say, as a data science guy, my new favorite static website and document generation tool is called Quarto hmm. from our studios. Now, Dave, I'm going to tell you, I agree 100% with Richard here on this. There was a project I was involved with at Hopkins uh, where... We were going to, we disseminate on this project. It's still active. I'm not involved with it anymore, but I did help start it. But one of the key, dis- we, we talk about cryptographic implementation on okay. this site. The site's called CryptoDoneRight.org. And that site is, is produced as static web pages. And the content is, the content management system we use on the back end is GitHub. Okay. So we just put the, the, the content up in GitHub. Yeah. It's a private repository. Right. There are people that have permissions to edit it because mm-hmm. we really want to control 
the information about the proper implementation about the cryptographic algorithms. We don't want bad information getting out. Sure. So we use a, uh, a tool. I can't remember which one it is, but it, it does just exactly what Richard is describing. We generate static web pages. Uh-huh. There's no active content on this at all. It is just static pages and a web server. Interesting. Well, I am going to uh, send this information over to my wife, who is a web developer and uh, actually does a lot of work in WordPress. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is good information for her to know. She may already know about this. I don't know, but I'm going to ask her. And uh, thank you, Richard, for sending it over. Interesting information for sure. Uh, we got some more follow-up from a Twitter user. I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's O-U-S-A-K, Osak, Wusak. Don't know. Ausak. Okay. Uh, he wrote in and said, uh, in the last episode of Hacking Humans, you spoke about people getting caught or not for having multiple full-time jobs at the same time. Uh, Equifax, who run credit reports, turned on their employees for doing just that. <laughs> a credit reporting agency, Equifax, has turned its own employee record tracking tool on its own employees. 24 remote workers have been fired for secretly holding down a second job in addition to their work for Equifax. Yeah, so, I have ethical concerns with that. With which part? The uh, I mean, well, I guess first off, the the which, which part? Well, okay, <laughs> multiple parts here. First off, is Equifax gathering this kind of information about employment records for people? How, uh, don't what know. Is, what is this tool that they're talking about? I don't know. I mean, I suppose I would guess it's an open source kind of thing where you know you can look through people's LinkedIn or who knows. But I I don't know what kinds of tools Equifax has uh, at their disposal. I mean, I will say there are some remarkably powerful open source intelligence gathering tools out there. Yeah. Um, I've seen, there's a tool that uh, we use just for, um, it's like a, a, what do you call it? Uh, like a Rolodex, you know, like a digital Rolodex kind right. of thing. Right. Um, but it goes out and scrapes everything. <laughs> like... <laughs> You put somebody's name in there, and it goes, and it finds their LinkedIn, it finds their Twitter, it finds their Facebook. I mean, it, and it just populates their, uh, you know, their entry in this digital Rolodex thing with everything it can find about them. Huh. So, um, that's table stakes these days, right? Right. Yeah. right. So, I guess I don't have an ethical problem with Equifax doing this if they told their employees this was a possibility of of, of that happening. Yeah. Although I don't know that I have a problem with Equifax. I don't know. I'm kind of conflicted about this. I mm-hmm. mean, because the expectation is you're going to be putting in a full-time job, every, a full-time day every day, right? Right, right. Uh, so I, I don't know how I feel. About it. I'm a little bit conflicted here, Dave. Yeah. I mean, I, I well, part of me thinks that if you're doing a good job and you're doing right. everything that's asked of you, then why do they care with what you do with the rest of your life? Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's really my main concern. Yeah. But if it's a problem, uh, and I suppose that you could make, there is absolutely a case to be made that uh, if you're holding down two full-time jobs that you're not going to have the energy or the time to devote to either of them to the degree you would if you were only holding down one. Right. But some people might be. Totally capable of that. Sure. So, I don't know. It, it, it's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for sending in uh, this follow-up. We would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories this week. Uh, I'm going to kick things off for us this time. I have a story from the folks over at Malwarebytes. This is from their uh, labs, folks. This is a, a blog post that was uh, authored by Jerome Segura. 
Uh, and this is about some typo squatting campaigns that mm. uh, the folks at Malwarebytes have been tracking. So, uh, real quick, typo squatting. You want to give us a little explanation here of what we're talking about? Dave, I have the absolute perfect example of typo squatting. Okay. Before Facebook, there was a website called highschoolalumni.com. All right. And if you look at your keyboard, the U and the I are very, very close to each other. Yes. And I was showing my boss at work one day this website. And I said, hey, Steve, come look at this. And he goes, what's this? I said, it's called highschoolalumni.com. And I go to my keyboard and I type in highschoolalumni.com. Oh. Right? And all of a sudden, the screen goes black and then porn pop-ups everywhere. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. And my boss is standing over my shoulder. And right. he goes, that's a cool website, Joe. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I just do? Right. Right. And he turned around and walked away laughing. And that he, was my last day right. at that job. <laughs> yes. Yes, but yes, That yes. is an example of typo squatting. <laughs> so the idea was mm. that they were looking for people who were trying to go to highschoolalumni.com who were going to hit the I instead of the U. Mm-hmm. I learned the hard way in front of a client once that yeah. if you leave out the Y in YouTube, a similar thing happens. Really? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> it was quite explicit. Uh, <laughs> so this blog post from the folks at Malwarebytes uh, has a list of of some of the real examples that they were tracking. So... Um, there's some examples here like realtor.com. The typo squatted website was realto.com. Um, amazon.co.uk. They had amazon.uk.com. I right? see. Um, politico.com. There was polit- politico.com. They, there was an extra I. They swapped the T and the I in the middle there. Um, so exactly to your point, I mean, at first glance, these look like the real thing. Right. But they're not. Right. So... What is going on here is that if you accidentally go to one of these websites, the way that this particular campaign works is uh, you immediately, your, your web traffic gets bid out, right? Much in the same way that uh, advertisers bid for put, placing an ad in front of you online. It's I like see. this real-time bidding kind of thing. So they're doing that and they're redirecting you to whoever pays them the most. That's right. That's right. So there's a bunch of uh, ad networks. Uh, you accidentally type in the wrong name. There's a bunch of ad networks that get to bid on you. And in this case, some of the folks bidding are malicious actors. Uh-huh. Uh, and then they redirect you to a domain controlled by the malicious actor. Uh, and this is malvertising. Um, they have uh, profiling here to uh, ignore bots and VPNs and... Uh, they refer to it as unwanted geolocation. So typically that's, um, for example, like Russian threat actors don't go after people who geolocate in Russia Correct. <laughs> generally. Correct. Or um, any Russian-speaking country. Right. So typically then you're sent to a temporary web page that's using Amazon's AWS, and then that pops up a fake alert. And we've all seen these alerts. Yep. Your computer is infected. Right. right. You, you have... Two minutes before your device bursts into flames. (laughs) Stand back. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And that's basically the scam. So you get a pop-up. It may actually go to a web page that looks like the page that you you meant to go to. But then this pop-up pops up on top of it that says, alert, your computer's infected. You know, please come here to uh, pay as low, low fee of $50 and we will help. (laughs) <laughs> help you much from getting infected. $50. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, I mean, it's pretty straightforward here. Uh, they do talk about uh, a few of the ways that you can protect yourself. Of course, be vigilant about uh, typing in sites. They say if there's sites that you visit frequently, bookmark them. So yeah. you bookmark them so you don't have to type them in. Correct. Uh, they talk about there are some um, ad protection browser plugins that'll automatically keep you from going to some of these uh, ad bidding types of sites. So they right. can get in front of it and say, "Do you really mean to go up?" To go to this place, you know, don't do not do that. Yes, yeah, so a security um, plugin would go a long way here, I think. Yeah. And then they say, don't panic, which is always right. good advice. Yeah, remain calm. <laughs> they say, the scary pop-up is not going to harm your computer. Just close it, ignore it, and move, move on. on. <laughs> Try to retype the address again. Right, right, exactly. That's really the key thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- these... These pop-ups from websites rely on user ignorance of how how computers work. Right. Uh, you know, one of these one of the things that is contributing to a lot of the social engineering attacks is people don't understand how computers work. They just use them. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, if somebody tells them, somebody who sounds like they know something about computers tells them, I'll give you an uh, an example of this. There was a uh, uh, this is a, an anecdote I heard years ago where somebody was building computers for somebody uh, and they had a uh, a network interface card on the back of it. Okay. And the person who bought the computer didn't know what it was and was like really belligerent and complaining about it. And this was <laughs> okay. back in the days of BNC connections, right? Do you remember yeah. BNC connections? So it was yeah. like a coax connection. Yeah. So the guy goes, oh yeah, I see what's happening here. And he goes and he gets the... Um, gets a little piece of BNC cable with a connector on it. Right. Cuts the end of it off and puts it on there and goes, there you go. That's your bit drain was not configured properly. <laughs> right. Okay. It's th- this computer was not, this is in the days before people had home networks. Right. So yeah, when they built computers, they just put the network interface cards in them. Oh, rather than taking it out and actually taking something from the customer that the customer owned, uh, which is what the customer was saying that could have been an option. Mm-hmm. The guy just said, nope, that's your bit drain. Any excess bits go there and they fall on your floor. You won't even see them. They're very, very small. <laughs> right. And, right. And the person said, thank you very much, and walked out with the computer. <laughs> right. Complaint answered. But yeah. this is a malicious implementation of that <laughs> of that kind of thing. Of, you know, you don't understand how the computer works. Right, right. right? And they're getting pretty good at it too. I mean, I, I remember in the early days of this, you know, I would be on a on some kind of, you know, Macintosh or or even in the days of iOS, and something would pop up with a Windows logo and say, you know, like Windows Defender. Right. <laughs> and I, and I'd go, hmm, well, you're barking up the wrong tree yeah, here. Probably but, not. Yeah, but lately, uh, when they do pop up, and you do see them from time to time, they'll have some kind of logo or you know iconography from. The proper operating system, right? Of course, it's not hard for them to query. No, and your browser tells you tells the website what operating system you're on. Yeah, and they can use that to switch. Uh, generally, it's for delivering content that may be specific to the computer. You know, there may be this. That's an old thinking, right? That yeah, it, it renders differently in different browsers. It generally doesn't anymore, especially with HTML5. So yeah, but they still send the browser string. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, that is my story this week. We'll, of course, have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from Christian Martinez, who is a staff writer at the LA Times. Okay. I have a question for you, Dave. Your dad was a realtor for a long time. He was, yes. And I had uh, a brief stint as a real estate agent slash realtor when I was uh, experiencing my failed sales career. (laughs) Right. Do you know what a short sale is? 
Uh, I'm familiar with the term, but I, I, and I kind of know what it is, but I would not be able to explain it with a lot of confidence. Okay. So I can explain things even if I don't know them, know about them with a lot of confidence. <laughs> right, right. But I actually do right. know what it is. You have male is. answer syndrome. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or even if you don't know the answer to something, I that just doesn't make it up. stop you from, right. from making it up and replying with great confidence. I one Proceed. Time, <laughs> I one time made up a story about where the Reuben came from, the uh-huh. Reuben sandwich, oh. and I just made up a complete story. And I got it right. Mm-hmm. The only thing I didn't get right was the name, the actual name of the person, because I picked a, uh, the name of somebody named Ruben from my childhood. Yeah. And I used a different last name, but the guy's first name was Ruben. He was in Manhattan, and I even nailed the year of 1916 or something wow. like that. Wow, okay. I made it all up, so oh, that did not help. <laughs> Better to be lucky than good sometimes. Right, exactly. All right. Uh, but I do know what a short sale is. Yes. And a short sale is when you own a house— and the house has less equity than the mortgage on the house. Mm, mm-hmm. So if you have bought a house at the peak of a market and now the market has crashed and also now you're in a situation where you need to get out of the house, right? you will have to go to your mortgage holder and say, I'm going to sell the house so you don't have to foreclose on it, but I'm going to sell it for less than I owe. Mm. And the mortgage company has to agree to this because what's happening is they're not being made whole by the payment of the mortgage. Right. They understand they're going to take a loss on the mortgage. And the value of the house that they're going to sell it for is short of the value of the mortgage. It doesn't have all the money. Yeah. That is a short sale. Okay. Well, this story is about a South Bay man who has accepted hundreds of offers on houses that really weren't even for sale. So there's two people— Adolfo Schenecki and his sister, Bianca Gonzalez. And what they would do is they would host open houses at homes that weren't even for sale. And they'd tell people, this is a short sale, right? So there's going to be some some issues going through the process of selling this home. Okay. Because a short sale is never really a simple you know, uh, here uh, we're moving. We're we're buying this house from from these people, and everything's going to be normal and fine. That process is that process is streamlined. The short sale process is by no definition streamlined. Okay. Everybody expects it to take much longer. Okay. So they were capitalizing on that. Um, the homes were not even for sale, and it was a front scheme that resulted in the loss of six million dollars from victims. And federal prosecutors have gone after these two. Let me just pause here for a second. How does one execute an open house on a home that is not even for sale? I'm just imagining somebody holding an open house on my house (laughs) while I'm living in it. So so these must be—are they driving around looking for abandoned houses? Or I guess abandoned isn't the right word, but unoccupied homes? It says, according to prosecutors— Shinecki and others found properties to list for sale, regardless of whether or not the owners intended to sell, sell uh, okay. or not, and then listed them on real estate websites, uh, oh. marketing them as short sale opportunities. So the owners may not have even known that uh, maybe the owners are not there. Right. Right. Maybe maybe they find that there are tenants in there and they say, hey, the owner's selling this house. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, your lease survives. All the, you know, yeah. There's all kinds of lies you can tell these people. Right. But somehow they got access to it. Okay. Um, and then they would put them up on real estate sites, never having a contract for sale. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So there is somebody in this system is some kind of realtor with access to some kind of MLS system. Right. 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 Once they had the, uh, once they had this, the listing, 
they would tell people, all right, time to uh, time to start making payments here on, you know, put down your earnest money deposit. Mm-hmm. And then they'd, you know, take that. Or they there were even some people who paid full cash price for the house and put that into their the these scammers' custody. Wow. And when they uh when they did that, the first thing they started doing was, okay, well, we're working with the bank. We're working with the bank. We're working with the bank. Years. Years they would delay these things, up to a year, I guess. Huh. Um, but Another interesting thing is that they would what they would do is they would direct office workers in their office to withdraw large amounts of cash from these escrow accounts. They were in charge of the escrow accounts, which is wrong, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, these people should never be in charge of the escrow account. In fact, whenever you're buying a house, I know in Maryland, you as the purchaser of the house pick the escrow company, mm-hmm. right? And the the person selling the house never gets the opportunity to say, you're going to have to use this escrow company. Right. That's illegal in Maryland. Right. Okay. And probably in all other 50 states because of exactly this reason. Yeah. Right? This is why it's it's not allowed. They would withdraw the money in cash, right? So it immediately becomes untraceable. Right. And they they took $12 million from a, a, a approximately 750 victims. 750 people fell for this uh, to the amount of $12 million. Wow. And they only got back $6 million. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, $6 million is gone from these guys. Now, Shinecki pled guilty in May and will now be a guest to the federal government for nine years for conspiracy to commit wire fraud and other charges. Wow. So good that he got caught. Uh, so if you're looking to buy a house, mm-hmm. here's my advice. I mean, there's all kinds of scams that happen around buying a house. Remember that that, that is no longer the sure and safe thing that it used to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are lots of opportunities to be scammed, and this is just another one. This is a, kind of on the front end of it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to put money into an escrow account, you pick the escrow agent under all circumstances. You make that a condition of your sale, even if it's not a law in your state. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, con- to uh, select the escrow agent. If they say no, walk away. Walk away. Don't accept that. That's an un- unacceptable risk when you're, when you're doing anything, mm-hmm. when you're buying anything with a large amount of money. Number two, a short sale is attractive because people think they're getting a value out of something. Right. I, I don't know that it's that it, you're getting a value out of it. You're you're paying the market price of the house. It just so happens that the market price of the house is less than it was when the mortgage was written to the to the extent that the the owner is what we say is upside down on the house. Yeah, but right? they're also motivated to sell because they're they're in a stressful situation. Right, so. but they're not selling uh, below market value because the bank will not have it. Right. 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 The, there, are, there is a point at which the bank would rather foreclose and sell it themselves. Sell it themselves. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is, that is always an option for the bank. So just be mindful of these two things. A short sale. When you see short sale, I've seen people go, "Ooh, short sale." I'm like, hey, "Don't, don't get, don't get excited about that." You know, <laughs> all that means is that it's going to be a more complicated sale. There are plenty of other houses on the market that are not short sales that are going to be comparable right. that are, are going to be easier to buy. Yeah, and this also reminds me that we've seen similar scams uh, with rentals. Yeah. Where people will advertise a rental online and then they'll say, you know, uh, we need your deposit. And they'll even go to the point of sending people keys. Right. And then they go to move into the place and somebody else is living there because yeah. it was never on the market. It, right. It was. So. It's just completely fraudulent. Yeah. But this is this is the same thing but with buying the house. So, Dave, let me ask you. If you're going to go for a rental deposit, which is just two months' rent, or you're going to go for selling a fake house that's not really up for sale, yeah, what are you going to sell? What are you going to do? I'm going to sell the fake house because that's going to get me 
tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. The rental deposit, I'm only getting $5,000, <laughs> right? So I'm going to get much more money scamming people out of buying a whole house. Yeah. Because actually I'm not going to do that because I'm not really a bad guy, but th- that's the thinking. No, and ah, crooks. Crooks. It makes you angry, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It, well, but I also think like so many of these things you could probably get away with if you just did it once. Right. Right? Right. But no, they have to go $12 million. Right. You know, they had, people. had a whole organization <laughs> set up to do this. Yeah. And the longer you do this, the greater your odds of being caught. And good for them for being caught and good for law enforcement. Uh, and I guess it just speaks to the mind of the criminal that they're motivated by, more motivated by greed than common sense or, or even the, the possibility of consequences, right? They're, right. Li- they're, they're living in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> they're not thinking about what's to come. They don't think about the future. No. They don't have that, uh, that dad gene that lets you see three seconds into the future at all times. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. All right, well, interesting stuff. Uh, and again, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from Chris, who says, Hey, y'all, I've been a listener for a few years, and I have never received a fish at home or work. I finally got hit with a fish attempt through my PayPal and not through email or text. Hmm. Uh, Dave, do you have PayPal on your phone? I don't have a PayPal app on my phone, no. Right. I mean, I've, I use I have used PayPal, but I, I don't I have, have the account. app on my phone either. No. Uh, I use I use it on the website. That's how I do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not familiar with this interface, but he said I thought you might find this interesting. Thanks for the great show, and looking forward to many more years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dave, there's a picture of his phone actually, mm-hmm. of uh, of Chris's phone here that shows <clears throat> you the message that he got on PayPal. Okay. It goes like this. The request for amount $500 is canceled. We've detected that your PayPal account has been accessed fraudulently. If you did not make this transaction, please call us at toll-free number to cancel and claim a refund. If this is not the case, you will be charged $500. Zero today. Within the automated deduction of the amount, this transaction will reflect on PayPal activity after 24 hours. Our service hours... 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Time, Monday through Friday. Transaction type, request received, canceled. Hmm. So this is, uh, this is a, apparently a message you can send over PayPal. Okay. Uh, and it looks like it's a, uh, a transaction that was canceled but has this text to come along with it to convince you that it is a message from PayPal and to get you to call that number. And then when you call that number, that's when the scamming begins. And they mm-hmm. probably install some remote access uh, software on your phone or maybe on your computer. Right. And they go in and they just take all your money out of all your accounts. And so the pressure point here is that uh, you'll be charged $500 today. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's the artificial time constraint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do we protect against this? I, I guess, first of all, obviously vigilance. Right. And know how PayPal works. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, if you do receive one of these messages and you are concerned about it, call PayPal directly uh, or work with PayPal directly by going through their customer service interface, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that may be. I'm not, I've never had to deal with um, PayPal's customer service before. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it may not even exist. It, I don't it know. It may not, right? <laughs> it may be awesome. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had an issue arise. Right. But if you do have, if you do receive one of these and you're a little bit concerned, first off, you should know it's a scam. But if it, if you don't know if it's a scam, do not call the number on 
the message. Well, and that's always a red flag, right? right. Whenever anybody tries to pull you off of the platform that you're on, right. be it P- PayPal or TikTok or Facebook or whatever. Or that, a dating that is, site. Or a dating site, right. That is always a red flag. Yep. Yep. 100% yep. agree. Yeah. I wonder also um, on PayPal if you if there's a tool in there to automatically reject messages from people who you don't already have a relationship with. Or there may be. People who aren't in your address book, something like that. Because that, that could be helpful. There is too. a button on this picture that says report this person. Aha. And I hope that Chris just clicked that button right away. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good one. Uh, thanks to Chris for sending that in. And again, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jamika Green Aaron. She is the CISO at a company called Off Zero, and uh, we were discussing their recent state of security identity report. Here's my conversation with Jamika Green Aaron. So I think this report, and this report actually predates my time at Auth0, um, but it's my favorite report. Um, and I actually read it before I joined the company because this report really takes what we learn as a customer identity company and turns those findings out into something useful for um, the, the customers that we work with. But also it's a really easy read. So even if you don't understand the technology of identity management, um, this report is something that really can help you as an individual understand what are the best practices? What are we looking at to help protect your identity and how you can be a part of that? So I love this report. That's kind of how it started. It really is taking our insights, data that we collect, threat intelligence that we collect, and using it as a tool to help all of the the community that really is focused on identity. Well, before we dig into some of the specifics in the report, can you just give us a little overview of exactly what are we talking about when we say online identity? What, What does that encompass? Right. So customer identity is essentially probably the identity that gets closest to each and every human being every single day. When we say customer identity, it's the identity that you use to log into gaming consoles, to access banking information, to access your social media. That is what we're talking about when we say customer identity. It's the identity that the the customer sees outside of work um, that faces them every single day. And so that's, that's our area of focus. And that's what we're really talking about here. Well, let's dig into the report together here. I mean, what what are some of the highlights for you? What caught your eye? So I am always thinking about how technology impacts the human experience and how we can leverage technology to help us. I, I, I always say that technology is about people. And I think that this report really shows the ways in which people interact with identity. So high level, we're talking about um, the major SIAM threats. And we break that down into what we are calling defense in depth, which is a multi-layered approach to how you implement security. We hit three major topics. We talk about user layer defense defenses, application layer defenses, and then also network layer defenses. So stacking those together in your environment, that is what we're thinking is is the best implementation um, to customer identity. Well, let's go through each of those one by one. I mean, what, what are some of the things that people should be aware of? So one of the things that I have really been interested in um, is some some Gartner research around um, beyond awareness. And that is this idea that we have to kind of turn our what we think about our users on its head. Users are not the weakest 
uh, link in the chain, they can be the first line of defense. And so when we look at user layer defenses, we're looking at how do we help the users protect themselves? So multi-factor authentication, um, you know, something you know, something you have, something you are. So having more than just a username and password. So what does that look like? Adding WebAuth in. One of my favorite um, frictionless uh, technologies for the most part is biometrics, and that's enabled via WebAuth in. Um, we're thinking about be- breach password detection and how can we put information into the user's hands to really help them protect themselves and breach passwords. And a lot of the new password tools have the ability to notify users that, hey, your password's been breached, you should change it. And then also identity proofing. So really leveraging the, the wealth of knowledge that we have um, via social media and other um, methodologies to really help us um, proof out a user's identity. And so I'll give you an example. I I own Jamika Aaron on LinkedIn.com. Um, you hmm. could essentially say, use that as a method to identity proof me. Is this actually her her login? Is it the same, you know, Gmail account that she uses? And so that's a method of us using identity proofing and pulling that together with our technologies to help identity proof a user and really say, yes, they own this identity and this is them. So that's kind of the user layer defenses. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, what about uh, application layer defenses? So when we think about application layers, and, and I think we all learn very early as technologies, we, technologists, we earn, you know, we learn our, our, you know, our, our kind of our seven layers. And so this works into that, into that scope of what those are. And so when we think about application layer defenses, you often hear the term lateral movement. Um, and that goes hand in hand with what we're calling impossible travel. So the inability of the threat actor to move across, um, to take that user's identity and move across your environment. So we're really thinking about that when we think about impossible travel, but we're also looking at other technologies that we can leverage um, to really improve our application layer defenses. So um, rate limiting, looking at those suspicious spikes that come into um, two systems and identity facing systems, customer facing systems that help us to understand um, how we can use rate limiting to understand denial of service attacks, to understand um, credential stuffing attacks. So really implementing um, controls there. Also suspicious IP blocking. This is one of those kind of cat and mouse things where we're always looking at IP addresses to help us understand how we can leverage blocking to um, block suspicious IPs and really protect the consumer. And then finally, bot detection. Um, bots are, are really becoming one of the biggest adversaries. They allow for the attackers to launch loads of attacks against um, consumer-facing systems. And so really looking at how do we d- detect and, and fight those bots. And so those are kind of the application layer defenses that we're, we're talking about. Well, let's continue on with the third one then, which is the network. What sort of things should people be on top of there? So network is, is I think, probably the simplest of these. We're talking about our network-based controls, our web application, firewalls, and then our continuous monitoring. And this is really where you start to look at what are the tools that you have in place that really help you to protect your consumers and your infrastructure, whether that's on-prem, hybrid, or in a cloud environment. Those network layer defenses really become critical. Um, when we think about our web application firewalls and our ability to share information about what we're blocking, what we're allowing, 
going. That really is helpful. We're also talking about tweaking, continuously tweaking to help to to create the kinds of systems that actually work. Um, you know, there is no one size fit, fits all when we think about network layer defenses. And so continuous monitoring is where that comes in. I know for us, we have a detection and response team that's continually monitoring, looking at where we can leverage um, machine learning and, and, and intelligence to help us create the kind of observability that allows continuous monitoring to not just be something that we do as, and as a human interaction, but really allows our systems to learn um, and to become intelligent with continuous monitoring. You know, it strikes me that securing our identities online has become such a fundamental part of of everyone's day-to-day. Where do you suppose we're headed here? What does the future look like? I think the future is, and I and I see this future come into fruition pretty pretty quickly here. I think the future is both passwordless and loginless. I think those are things that we can look forward to um, in the near future. And with and when we think about passwordless and loginless, it's not that it's not there. It's that it's something that is so easy to interact act with, it's frictionless, that the users will adopt it. So when we think about password lists, in many cases, we don't have to type in a password. We're using external authenticators. We're using um, password tools that actually implement the password for you. And so I think we're headed down that path where password lists, uh, using passwords becomes a thing of the past. And then when you think login lists, same kind of, same technology, I think, that's in play there, where you do have a login, you just don't see it very often often. And we we see a lot of technologies that don't require logins anymore. When you think about social media, there's the companies that run social media are some of the best adopters of password lists and login lists. They're tying their, uh, their applications together to authenticate against one another. They understand step-up authentication and multi-factor authentication. And so I think in those social media spaces, we see a lot of the future technologies coming to fruition already with password lists and login lists. What about the adoption rates? I mean, are, are, are people getting on board or is how much resistance are, are you all seeing? We, we all know how much you know, people like change. So, so here's the challenge of getting on board. I think if, if every CIO and every CISO would get on board if, if they had the ability to do so quickly in friction, in a frictionless manner, that is impossible. We still have lots of technical debt. We still have lots of on-prem architect- architecture and implementations that, that don't allow that yet. And so I think what we have to do and, and, and digital transformation is a big buzzword, but it's an important buzzword. It's one that is enabling the technologies of the future. Um, that's what digital transformation means to me. It means that we are doing the work now to enable the technologies of the future. And so I think with implementation, in many cases, um, we have a lot of technical debt. We have a lot of um, technology that are legacy technologies that just won't allow for us to use things like web authentic and biometrics. And so what we have to do first is start to upgrade our technologies to be able to use these new technologies. I think once we get to that point, and we're probably still a few years out, I think adoption will go through the roof. So I don't think that uh, our our adoption rates are where we'd like to see them be, but I think it has to do with us really understanding our workforce, the boundaries of our workforces have moved. We we did a lot of work to support the remote workforce, and now we have to do that same work to protect that remote workforce for the formidable future. And so, no, adoption is most certainly not as high as we'd like to see it, but I think that everyone, um, everyone that I've spoken to and in my CISO community understands how important identity is and understands that 
if we don't do this work now, we're going to create identity silos where you have a system that manages identity that's in a silo and it's completely separate from everything else that you do. And that's not what you want. In order to leverage some of the tools that I've talked about, like social logins and web often, you've got to have some centralized um, idea about how you want to implement identity. How does privacy uh, interact with all of this? You know, I, I remember years ago when when some of the big popular social media platforms spun up and there was this idea that you could use you know, one social media platform to, to log into everything, but it turns out that they weren't being respectful of people's privacy. And I think some people feel, or me personally, I, I feel a little bit stung by that. Uh, how do the two things go hand in hand? How, how do we build that trust? I think that privacy probably is one of the, the greatest strengths of customer identity. If we do a good job implementing customer identity, we also have the ability to do a better job protecting consumer privacy. One of the things that we didn't do, and this is probably, you know, we're decades now into um, what ha- what we did, you know, that was contrary to privacy. In many cases, you know, the new privacy laws essentially are asking us to at any point in time, a consumer can say, where is my data? You know, delete my data. What are you doing with my data? And that's a database, uh, you know, architecture issue. We didn't build these databases to actually do that, to fetch that information for the consumer. We built it to fetch it for us, the technologists. And so one of the things I think that identity is doing or identity um, and, and Siam is doing is building that, that muscle so that, you know, as we understand the consumers more, we're also better able to manage their information more. And we do, you know, we're building in the capabilities to really say, hey, users, this is what we're doing with your data. On top of that, I think it's critically important that we be transparent about how we use use the user's data. And so I think that Siam is one of the key um, approaches to that. It, it really helps us to get granular with how we're using the user's data um, and give that information back to the users. And so protecting identity isn't just about us, the consumer, uh, us, the, the business needing to manage consumer identity. It's about the cons- us working with the consumer to really show them that, you know, if if privacy is their major concern, it's also our major concern. The other thing that I think is critical about um, the security of Siam is that we're protecting the user's identities. And so when there's a big data breach, oftentimes what the attackers are after is the user's private information. And as we implement multi-factor and biometrics and build on top of WebAuthn, we are better able to protect the privacy by protecting their identities. Joe, what do you think? Dave, I think identity is one of those things that is hard to find online, Mm. right? You know, in person, it's pretty easy. I'm Joe. You're Dave. Right. This is not talking about someone's social identity. I'm actually talking about the issue of substance, like what you are. Yeah. Who you are and you are, you know, you are Dave Bittner. Right. I am Joe Kerrigan. need Big bag of meat walking around. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Right. And, you know, if you think about, if you think about this traditionally, we've thought about authentication as our means of identity management. But mm-hmm. there's all kinds of other aspects of identity that go along with just authentication, right? Authentication is how you can demonstrate that you are who you say you are. But identity is a way of proving that you are somebody. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 I don't know if the difference is subtle. Jamika talks about the three layers that they use at Auth0, the user layer, uh, and I like I like her thinking that users can be the first line of defense. They're not just the um, 
the the biggest source of errors. I, I think they probably are still a big source of errors, but they can they can be uh, defen- defensive. Uh, yeah, having them use multi-factor authentication, mm-hmm. right? If you insisted everybody use multi-factor authentication when authenticating to your site, that's that's better than not doing so. Yeah, huge, huge, right? Some kind of password manager, preferably one that lets you know when your passwords have been breached. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's always a good tool. Yeah, and then. Uh, in the application layer where you're talking about the the software that you're using, uh, some kind of rate limiting is remarkably important. Uh, that is going to protect you and your customers from uh, from being falling victim to like a credential stuffing attack. Right. Right. Uh, that is a huge way of trying to get in to, uh, to sites because there are tons of credentials out there, you know, email, you know, username, password pairs out there that are readily available for anybody to try a, a credential stuffing attack. Uh, you can also use password spraying, which is very similar, but you just use random passwords. Mm. Uh, but a, a pass- if you rate limit uh, a, a login attempts, password spraying is just not going to work, mm-hmm. right? And, and credential stuffing is probably going to be less effective. Mm-hmm. But if somebody is reusing passwords and they only have like five passwords, your, your rate limiting may not stop a credential stuffing attack. Right, right. <laughs> It may fail. Uh, that's why multi-factor authentication is so important. Suspicious IPs, uh, you know, the exit nodes for a lot of VPN services or, or Tor exit nodes, you might want to not let those people authenticate through that. Or, or better yet, you may want to rate limit those to one attempt. Impossible travel, uh, that's an interesting interesting concept. You know, if, if the last time you logged in was uh, an hour ago in Maryland and the next time you log in is now in England, <laughs> right, right. Right. Five minutes later. Right. Five minutes yeah. later. Yeah. You can't, you can't do that. Without right? either a transporter or a time machine. Right. Yeah. One of those two. Mm-hmm. Neither of which are feasible. <laughs> um, and then bot detection. Uh, you know, bot detection, credential stuffing is done with bots. That's all it is. It's just a, um, yeah. it's an automated process. And I guess if you're talking about bot detection, you're talking about bot network detection. So maybe there's a bunch of these things out there trying it that would come in really handy. From the network layer, you're talking about continuous monitoring and web application firewalls uh, and proper configuration of those devices. And that assumes that you have, uh, well, for the web application firewall, you do have a a perimeter on the web application, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But continuous monitoring and reporting, you need that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, we we need to be able to to do both of the following things. Number one, verify our identities online. There are things that we need to be able to do that for, like right. for, for banking and for uh, applications where it's important that whoever's on the other end of the communication knows who we are and can, de- can validate that. Yeah. The other thing we need to do is to be able to conceal our identities online. We need mm. to maintain some level of privacy here. Mm-hmm. When uh, people can maintain multiple identities online as, uh, you know, for different aspects of, of their own personal lives. Right. And I think that's a valid use case. Mm-hmm. I would think that anything financial would be under a, a requirement for identity, but anything not financial, maybe you want to do that anonymously, yeah, right? Maybe. It would be nice. It'd be nice to at least to have the option. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it would be. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Jamika Green Aaron. She is the Chief Information Security Officer at Auth0. We do appreciate her taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. 
Our thanks to Harbor Labs and the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at harborlabs.com and isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilby. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.